Welcome to Comic Book Historian Podcast. This is Alex Grand. This is a special all-star episode where I walked through Artist Alley at San Diego Comic-Con 2019 and had the privilege of speaking with five artists in comic history. We have, in order of involvement in the comic industry, Anthony Tolan, colorist at DC Comics since the 1970s, discussing his pulp history and co-workers like Saul Harrison and Jack Adler. We also have Will Sportacio, who started in comics in the 1980s and ended up being in Image Comics. We also have Jimmy Robinson, who is the creator of Bomb Queen, started in comics in the 90s. Also, we have Benton Jew, who is a storyboard artist and comic artist working on Independence and at Marvel Comics. And then we have Jim Chung, who some consider the modern John Byrne, who has done a lot of team books for both Marvel Comics and DC Comics. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Well, I'm Alex Grand with Comic Book Historians, and I'm here at the San Diego Comic-Con 2019, and I'm speaking to comic book and pulp historian veteran Anthony Tolan. Anthony Tolan, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Anthony, tell us about what kind of comics you were reading as a child and what got you into comic books. Well, the first comic book I bought was Superman with the uh, Rainbow Powers in, I think, 1958. (laughs) And my favorite comic book in my childhood was Green Lantern, because I was the child of the space age. John Glenn went into orbit on my 10th birthday, and Hal Jordan, of course, was a Chuck Yeager-esque test pilot. By the way, today, 50 years ago today, I watched Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon with Gordon Dixon, who was that year president of the Science Fiction Writers of America. So the day that science fiction became science fact, I was sharing the event with the president of the SFWA and one of the great science fiction writers himself. But Green Lantern, my favorite characters have always been the Hal Jordan Green Lantern, although I cosplayed as Alan Scott at the 1973 Sulincon. Powered by the Green Flame. Right. And the Shadow I fell in love with in junior high, and I started collecting the pulps. I have a complete set of the Shadow pulps, and I co-authored the Shadow scrapbook with Walter Gibson. And the other one of my top favorite characters is uh, the Phantom. And... I was a friend of Lee Falk's, and the Phantom, of course, predated Superman by two years and predated uh, Batman's debut by three years. Debuted in February of 1936. But I was really lucky. I got into comic books as part of the group that Howard Chaikin refers to as being there at the end of the beginning. And we were there at the end of the beginning because the people who hired us and the people we trained us and the people we worked with were there at the beginning of comics. My two immediate bosses, Jack Adler. Jack did the color separation and coloring on Prince Valiant in 1937-38 on the Sunday pages for Hal Foster. And he developed the color separation method by which most comics were separated up to the uh, digital computer age. And Jack also, like Saul Harrison, worked on Action Comics number 1 on the separations And Saul actually worked on the separations and operated the binding machine on Famous Funnies number one, the first comic book in 1934. So it's really those of us who were members of the DC Woodchucks who were working for DC in 74, 75 through the 70s, who have a lot of the memories we are preserving of the stories that the people were there at the very beginning told us. And this is the genesis of comic books. And you mentioned Lee Falk. You've also mentioned before Walter Gibson. And these both created characters that would influence Batman and the characters we know now. The very first Batman 
comic book story, The Case of the Chemical Syndicate, was lifted start to finish from a 1936 shadow novel, Partners Apparel, which, curiously, was the first shadow novel not written by Walter Gibson, but perhaps because it had a simpler plot with less intricacies, it was easier to adapt to a six-page comic book story. But Bill Finger said that his first Batman story was a takeoff on a shadow novel. It was far more than a takeoff. There's nothing in that first Batman story other than the name and the costume that was not lifted from the shadow novel. And in fact, the shadow in the course of that novel is referred to several times as bat-like or a living bat. But yeah, Walter was one of the giants in comics. Walter Gibson also worked for 25 different comic book companies. Ace, Avon, he created Space Western for Charlton. He um, wrote Captain uh, Marvel Family and Bulletman stories for Fawcett. So, I mean, Walter, I keep recommending Walter for the Bill Finger Award because while he's a famous writer, his comic book work is generally unknown. You know, he wrote most of the Shadow comic book stories in the Golden Age. He wrote a Bill Barnes story in which American pilot Bill Barnes is sent to end the war with Japan by dropping a U-235 bomb on Japan. And the story came out in the spring of 1942, less than six months after Pearl Harbor, and three years before Hiroshima. And the U.S. government was not happy. G-men arrived at the Street and Smith offices because they just started the Manhattan Project. And suddenly here's a story that says on the cover, in this issue we demonstrate with cold scientific fact how to blow Japan into the ocean. And there was quite a bit of explanation as to how a U-235 bomb would work and how powerful it would be. And as I said, it came out four years before the atomic bomb. But I was of the generation of of young fans, and and it's funny to realize that, you know, the old guys, and it was so clear because there'd been virtually no one new in the business except since the 40s, except for a few during the EC, early 50s with EC. But because of the retrenchment that happened, during the post-Comics Code era, no one knew it coming to the business until you had a couple like Roy Thomas and Neil Adams and Jim Stranko in the mid-60s. But then a few years later, you had Len Wein and Marv Wolfman and Bernie Wrightson and Mike Kaluta, Howard Shake, and our generation, you know, and Tony Isabella. I started at Warren and Marvel in 73. I worked on Famous Monsters number 100. And went to D.C. and began 21 years at D.C. Comics in... 74. And we were there to work with the people. I mean, Bob Oxner and, and Herb Novick had both started in comics in 1939. Herb Novick is the original artist on The Shield at MLJ. And he was drawing Batman when, you know, Adrian and I were coloring it in the late 70s. And Adrian, you're referring to your wife? My late wife, Adrian Roy, who colored 202 issues of Detective Comics, 191 issues of Batman, The Wolfman Perez, Teen Titan from the beginning, Mike Rose, Warlord, starting with number 11, co-colored Crisis on Infinite Earths with me. Actually, uh, because of deadlines, we reached the point where almost everything we did was done as a team. I tended to do the Shadow Strikes and the Phantom by myself. She did Manhunter and some of the Batman stories. And uh, Slash Barad, she did on her own. But generally, you know, I would do the covers and then we'd work together. It was just because so many of the hot books we were on had the most overworked teams, so they were coming in and had to be colored in two days or something. So the two of us would team up and, you know, yeah. I often have noted that a lot of people who were fans then thought Adrian Roy colored every comic at D.C., and that wasn't the case. She was actually 
only coloring the titles that people were reading. Yeah, and I think a lot of people look back at those issues. Maybe at the time, they just kind of said, okay, this is a fun comic. But looking back, that coloring that you guys did was really special. Well, basically, a colorist does basically in a comic book the work that a cinematographer does in a movie. I only recently learned a few years ago, Jim Stranko told me, what a cinematographer does. And they never touch the camera. They light the scene. And it's a colorist's job to focus the attention on what's important, to kill what's unimportant. And to basically, through that, tell the story. In the real world, you see a lot of bright fire engine red chairs, you know, comfy chairs and such. But if you had that in a comic book story, it would direct your attention away from what was important. So you shouldn't have a bright red chair in a comic book story unless there's $10 million hidden in it, and it's important for some reason. But as I said, I was lucky to be trained by Jack Adler and Saul Harrison to work with Julie Schwartz and Murray Boldenoff, who had been there since the early 40s. Titans of the industry, for sure. Yes, and the living history of the business. And, and Saul, as I said, it, it was Saul who recognized that you know they were all in their mid to late 50s, and that since they cared about the company... They needed to start training their successors. It's kind of a sobering thought to realize that at the time, Saul Harrison and Jack Adler were a decade younger than I am now. <laughs> and they and felt like old men back then. So they'd been there. You know, I mean, well, one of the amazing things about Paul Levitt, Paul Levitt started as an assistant editor at DC in 1973. 1973, Superman had been published for 35 years. 1973 is now... 46 years ago. So Paul Levitz has been at DC for close to two-thirds of the history of su- publishing history of Superman. I mean, you know, well over half the history of Superman, Paul Levitz has been there. And that's one of the things we were very fortunate at at DC. When I read a history of Marvel comics during the 60s and 70s and 80s, Marvel went through so many changes of ownership and so many regime changes Whereas DC, it was pretty consistent. You had, after Carmine was let go in the beginning of 76, you had Saul and Jeanette for like five or six years. And then you had Jeanette Kahn as president for, you know, with Paul Levitz as publisher. Uh, Paul was publisher for 22 years and president and publisher for seven years, I believe. And so we had a consistent leadership and consistent direction. And it wasn't changing at the whim of whoever you know, was the the head of the month. And so I'm really happy I had those years at DC. I regret that my comic book career ended when I developed gray hair, but I would never trade the years I had at DC. I wish my DC career was longer, but I wish it was longer at the early end when you were working with the Julie Schwartzes and the Murray Boltonoff and Joe Kubert. Oh, when I started at DC, Joe Simon was a part-time editor at DC. You know, the creator of Captain America. He was doing Sandman and Green Team, and he was editing Young Romance and Young Love. So, I mean, and he and Kirby had created the love. You know, I mean, we think of them for Captain America and Boy Commando, but they created the first horror comic, Black Magic. They created the first romance comics, Young Romance and Young Love. A friend of mine and I, uh, Rick Norwood, who publishes Comics Review, the newspaper strip thing, used to, when we were living nearby, challenge each other to have one of us name major comic book characters created by Jack Kirby and the other major comic book characters created by everyone else. And it was generally a toss-up as to who ran out of names first. And the same thing, major villains created by Jack Kirby, major villains created by everyone else in comics. 
And I mean, you just realize, you know, and I got to color Jack Kirby and new guys, you know, which is just fabulous. And, uh, I colored Gil Kane and Dave Gibbons on Green Lantern. I colored George Perez on Crisis on Infinite Earths. And I colored half the covers at DC for about a decade, with the other covers being colored by Tatiana Wood, Wally Wood's ex-wife. It was just a great time. And the great thing about comics when I got into it in 1973 and 74, well, when I started at DC in 74, there were 33 people on staff. Sometimes 35, but generally 33 to 35 people on staff, including the payroll department upstairs. So there were generally like 27 of us in editorial production, the executive ranks, the dark room, and the overseas export department. So everybody knew everybody in the comic industry. You know, we partied at the studio. You know, we went to parties at the studio, Bernie Wrights and Mike Luda and Jeff Jones and Mary Smith's art studio. Or at Neil and Jeanette's uh, first Fridays. It was a very different business because you didn't have FedEx then. So everyone had to live in the New York area. So we all knew everybody. That's interesting. Yeah, that FedEx really makes a difference because now everyone's all hanging out with each other. Right. But back then, you know, most of us had moved in from out of town. There were people like Howard Chaikin who'd gone, you know, and Steve Mitchell and Alan Copperberg who were local, Marv Wolfen and Len Wein. But most of us, I came from Minneapolis, Tony Isabella from Cleveland, you know, Tom Morizakowski, a lot from Detroit, Al Milgram and Jim Starlin and Rich Buckler were from Detroit. Bill Dubay, who I worked with at Warren, was from California. So we really didn't know anyone other than each other. So we, you know, and so we were really in kind of a, like the literary, Parisian literary communities of the 1920s. I mean, we were... We were a community in a way that comics has not been since then. There's a special excitement one has when you're young and in your dream job and just learning so much every day. And that's why people like Jerry Robinson would so fondly remember the early days of the Golden Age and Eisner and the people who worked for them. They were creating the language back then. Right. But, you know, we were there, as I said, at the end of the beginning. And we were there right in the transition when our new generation, people like, you know, George Perez and John Byrne. And John Byrne had to change his signature because he had a strange signature starting out and people kept reading it as Tallinn. John told me that he had to change his signature because people kept thinking it was my work. He had a J that looked kind of like a T and an N at the end and this kind of scrawl in between. But we had Walt Simonson and, and you had all these people starting to change things and also coming from a tradition where they had not grown up in the pulp era and the depression, so they were a bit more willing to demand. You know, people grew up in the depression were kind of fearful of losing jobs. But we were right there when things were really changing. So we had the excitement of working with the people who had been there from the beginning, but we also had our new generation coming in and taking over. Only recently have I really come to appreciate that period because when I first started at DC, it was just after the period when we'd had all this creativity with Batlash and Anthro and Dead Man and Green Lantern and Green Arrow, and they hadn't appeared to have sold that well. So there was kind of an attitude, well, quality doesn't sell, so, you know, why bother? We still had Swamp Thing, we had the Colluded Shadow. But when I look back and, you know, just realize a few years later, you know, New Teen Titans, Don Newton on Batman, and, you know, Jim Apparel, and, and once again, Swamp Thing, and Mike Rell's Warlord, which my wife Adrian colored. You know, we had a major 
Uh, and I see someone with a 3D model of a cover I colored right behind you. But, um, yeah, it was a really exciting time. And I would have liked my comic career to have lasted longer. But there's no way I would have traded the uh, 21 years back then for the last 20. Because things were just so much fun back then. And so changing. And a lot more freedom. I mean, it's amazing the freedom editors like Julie Schwartz had with characters like Superman and Batman and Green Lantern, that the changes did not have to be approved by corporate. You know, things just happened because an editor wanted them to happen, not because of a 10-year marketing strategy or something. Anyway, looking forward to talking to you more extensively later. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Anthony. We love the historical perspective you bring and the fact that you're a hybrid of comics and pulp history. Radio. And old-time radio as well. That's true. And great religious experiences in my life was throwing a cue and having Fred Foy say, a fiery horse with a speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver. <laughs> I got to work with all these wonderful Burgess Meredith, Gail Storm, John Archer, who played The Shadow, all these wonderful old Jackson Beck. But, okay. Well, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Here we are at San Diego Comic-Con 2019, and we're talking to Wills Portacio. Wills, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you. Wills, tell the audience, um, what were some of your childhood comic book artist inspirations growing up? During that time, it was the big heavy Ed Flincilla of the 60s guys. So I had like a triumphant of three. Neil Adams were, at the time was coming in, and so he was bringing illustrative stuff, so real anatomy and stuff like that, and I'm an anatomy freak. So I jumped on that stuff. And then I got really, really got into Kirby just for his imagination. And then it's along the same lines because I'm such a science fiction freak. Before comics, I started just devouring science fiction novels. Then I bumped into the artwork of Alex Nino. And he was like pure sci-fi, pure fantasy. He was just like, I mean, he, his hand would just go and just create these weird worlds that you couldn't right away understood, but then that made you look and look and look at his drawings more and more. So is that like the DC and Warren stuff he used to do like in the 70s, early 80s? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then also like when Marvel started doing some of their black and whites, like I remember being floored by Iron Fist with Rudy Nibres. At that time, I don't remember, he was doing some ink work, and then he would put a, a, a gray wash on it. You know, so, but he would do it in feathered, like he was inking. So it was kind of like a double thing, but it was a nice contrast to it. He inked over Ditko too on the fly. Yeah. Well, a lot of those Filipino guys, you know, they were just powerhouse workhorses. I mean, they did almost anything and everything. You know, they could take chicken scratch and turn it into a, a full fledged, you know, fully rendered book and you'd never know that it wasn't. I think that's why a lot of those guys were, the editors really needed these kind of guys. I mean, to get the job done, high quality work. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I mean, like, you know, the today's standard, which has been a standard for a long time, is a page a day. But those guys didn't know that. Because as I found out talking with other people, before the Filipino guys came over here and worked for DC and, and Marvel and, and others, they were in the Philippines working for what was called comics with a K. And those were basically like romance and horror stuff. Well, that standard was eight pages a week, penciled, ink, and lettered by just the one guy. It's a huge job. Yeah, it's a huge job. So when they came over here, again, you know, they were young 
artistic Turks that just wanted to prove themselves. So they didn't know better. You know, they didn't know to slow down. Right. Yeah, that was the early 70s, and it was a huge wave of artists. A huge wave. I was raised here. I'm 56 now, and I've been here since I was two years old. So I grew up absorbing this American culture, and I didn't actually learn Tagalog, the, uh, one of the Philippine languages, until like 10 years ago. My point is, I was just fully absorbed in American culture, American art culture. So then when these guys came on the scene, it was like, it was a huge breath of air because it was totally different. And then, because I mean, at the time, a lot of the magazine work was just, was considered, you know, okay, that's, you know, most people aren't seeing that. That's mostly a market for military servicemen and stuff. But the amount of work they did, the type of work they did, and effortlessly, you know? A lot of them were inspired by like Hal Foster. So they're putting in a high quality illustration. High quality illustration. So growing up as a quote unquote, an American kid, and then slowly getting into my Filipino roots, and then to find out that in the 60s and the 70s, you had this migration of these, these phenomenal talents. And then they, you know, took reign for a couple decades. And then, you know, I come on the scene and I don't know any other Filipinars, but then I slowly start finding some. And then I go back home to the Philippines and uh, I set up a school there and, and I, I discover like Linneal Yu and Philip Tan. And now you have Carlo, um, you have Miko, you have Jerome. Yeah. So we have another wave. So it, it's cool that I'm now part of a tradition, you know, the, the, yeah, but it's very interesting that here in the Philippines, thousands and thousands of miles away, you know, not only do we speaking, almost everybody speaks English, but we totally understand American culture and American comics. So them coming over here, there's no learning curve. It's just give them a plot and go, you know, and that, that's the way it is with me. But then I was raised here. Tell the audience, how'd you get into the comic book industry? When Around when that happened, how that happened? There's film connection, too, because I'm a Navy brat. So my dad retired in 79. I was 16, I think, at the time. So he wanted us, because we were raised in the, Phil- in the States, he wanted us then to experience the Philippines. So we went back to the Philippines, and after three, two years in the high, finished high school. Then I went to college. I went to an art college over there. And art over there was really great, but it was about abstract painting. And I'm not really an abstract. I'm a realist. So I got out of college, came back here, had an auntie and cousins in San Diego. My older cousin drags me over and sa- pulls my portfolio together and says, we're going to San Diego Con. And I go, what's that? This is way back. So this is when San Diego Comic-Con was in, in the Civic uh, Center. What year was that? That must have been 85. Oh, okay. Yeah, 84 or 85. Yeah, so it was way over there. But knock on wood, I've been very, very lucky in my life. So that year, my first year, I don't even know what San Diego Con is. My cousin dragged me over with my portfolio, and every single Marvel editor was there looking for talent. So I get caught up in that and boom. And it's interesting too because I originally as a kid, I grew up in the 60s, so I, I wanted to be an astronaut, but I'm too short. My kneecaps would blow if I ejected out of the ejector seats because uh, okay. there's, there's only one size and my legs are too short. Then I got, like I said, I got into science fiction novels. So then because that, I wanted to become a movie director. Yeah, okay. Before that could happen, and I was really 
setting my ways there, my cousin comes in and, and drags me over. And as you know, that was the beginning of a lot of this. The birth of the ex-office, not the birth of the ex-office, but the expansion, the huge expansion of the ex-office. And then that for us going into image and then, you know, everything that we have right now. So in what I thought would be just this, okay, let me explore this pond for a little while. More than 30 years later, I'm still here stuck in this pond and it's still going. Yeah. It's still going. Great professional lifestyle. And you have a great body of work behind you and in front of you. So what projects are you working on now? Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We'll bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. I'm in a very, very lucky position right now where I can do covers. So I'm going to do one more year of covers, though I did an issue of Major X of Rob Liefeld uh, a month ago. You know, just uh, test my squeaking bones to see if I could, you know, do a month monthly book again, an issue again. And, and I could. So but I'm in the sweet position where, you know, for more than 30 years, you know, I did the page a day. You know, I did interior work for month in and month out where you get to the point after like five, ten years that you have to go to conventions so fans will bring up comic books and remind you <laughs> of your work because, I mean, you, you do page one and then you go on, you do page 20 and then you, you clap, go to FedEx or now you, you know, you scan it and send it over. And the next day you start on page one, right. you know, so it becomes this blur after a while. A grind and a blur together. Huh? Yeah. And so the professional part of that is actually being able to effortlessly do storytelling and doing drawing that will appeal, but without thinking about it, because you only have four weeks, you know. So when they started offering me last year to do covers where I could take up to a week, a week to do one image and then just and then really think about it and not just let my instincts go, but actually excise part of that film director desire in me because I'm quite fortunate that even though my dream initially was to become a, a film director, doing comics is much better. I mean, you hear all of the big guys, directors complain that, you know, at the end of the project, they're like dead tired because every day they're answering questions like, so what color shoelace would the Hulk wear? You know, and they have to make decisions on everything and everything and make sure everybody is in that field to hit the mood of the project and, and day by day to scene by scene. Me, if I want it to rain, it rains. Yeah. You know, I don't have to call up the fire department. I don't have to have tell ask accounting. How much is 400 gallons of water going to cost me? If I see a pretty girl on the street, she's in the book. You know, <laughs> you know, I get to excise all of the artistic skill that a movie director does in casting, in acting, the, it, what, you know, directing the actors to act the way he wants, in deciding on production design for locations and everything, deciding the pace, deciding the choreography and everything. 
I can do that, but I can do it in a godlike way where if I want it to happen, it just happens. Yeah. You know? That's a great description. So the vision is implemented right away, right there. Yeah. It's all just up to me. Whatever I can do. That's why I believe every genre, every field has to have their their place. So for me, what comics is, is if I can imagine I could draw it. There's no consideration of budget. There's no consideration of do we have fabricators that can do this or can we do this CG, right? It's just up to me. So I believe almost all our stories should be epic, should be as big as, as our, our imagination of the concept can be. Never tempered by any real world consideration. Like a Cecil B. DeMille movie, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And then in the inter-industry vein, we should be thinking, you know, hey, is this story a story that, okay, Hollywood can do everything now, but are they going to have a tough time doing this? Or are they going to need a 500 million budget to do this? I think we should do that because that then pushes the boundary of story and concepts, you know? Instead of trying to keep it in the realm of, can we do this? Because again, if you ask that question, can we do it? Well, it's, can I do it? And most of us guys in, in the top level, we can do anything. That's what the skill set is, you know? And so I think all our stories should be that way. I think, you know, again, because I'm a science fiction guy, yeah, everything based in, in some kind of reality or some kind of science, and you keep it a strong adherence and discipline to the rules that you've set, but let yourself go. There's so much that still hasn't been imagined. You know, imagination comes from uh, limitations, from the unknown. And then us artists going, okay, maybe this explains that. You know, or maybe this is what's really happening. You know, it's fantasy, it's conjecture. But the non-creative people, they don't have the time to think about that. I mean, it's life. I, I really am proud that I could take my field back to way, way, way back. Leonardo da Vinci and everybody, they did comics, but the definition of comics back then was a lot of those guys back, the classical guys, did like the gods, yeah. the Greek gods and stuff. Well, they couldn't call Zeus and say, Zeus, can you pose for me for a little while? So they had to imagine that. And then reading the stories of like Waterhouse going to Egypt and then measuring what remained of the pyramids and stuff. And then copying down all the hieroglyphics so that he could get exact. So he was doing the same thing. He was taking mythos, a script, a plot, a fantastic one, and then trying to imagine it with his realistic style, imagine it for regular people, what it might have looked like, and hopefully from there inspire. And you take it even further where everybody back in the way, way, way Stone Age days, you know, or the medieval days, Life was just too much. I mean, you didn't have supermarkets or anything. You had to not only be able to hunt down your food, find food, process it, skin it, know what not to eat in it, know what to do with the organs and stuff, and then know how to cook it and know how to find salt if you were lucky. Back then, almost everybody, 90% of the people I believe, had life to concentrate on. So when I come along and... I'm too cowardly to, to fight any of the wars because I don't want to get killed or my back won't be able to take the work of farming or anything like that. 
And so I'm just walking around and I bump into these guys dead tired, six o'clock you know, at night eating their, their dinner. And I come in with this fantastic story of what if a, a Lord and his knights were benevolent, you know, which is what they're thinking because everybody's bad. But what if there were these powerful people who were good? So I'm telling them this fantastic story, King Arthur, and it sticks because it's not what they could imagine, but it's what they hope could happen. You know, so us storytellers, us creative people, we've got a really long lineage, and I don't think we hark on that enough. Um, we are really at the roots of society's inspiration, society's explaining what life is, what phenomena is. Is the sun going to come back? <laughs> you know, what is the sun? Again, most people don't have any time to deal with that. They just, oh, great, I have food now. And, hey, that guy's coming. Is that guy going to come around again? He could tell these weird stories. I don't believe in him, but, oh, it's fun listening to this stuff. Yeah, sure. You know, and then, okay, hey, they offer me, you know, a little corner in the in the shed or in the, you know, the barn or, you know, and they give me some food. I can't farm. I can't hunt. And so that cycle works itself and i think that ha happened throughout our history wow. you know i like that so imagination inspiration hope and bringing that to people to enjoy wills Partizio, thanks so much for joining us today we really appreciate the talk oh thank you thank you this is fun and um it's great you guys are digital now in the old days when it was taped i would always run out all their tapes so and we love your passion really thank you thank you, thank you. all right well, we're here at continuing our journey at uh, San Diego Comic-Con 2019. I'm talking to one of my uh, comic book uh, artist uh, idols, Jimmy Robinson. How are you doing? I'm doing just great. Right on. Well, Jimmy, I love your comics. I'm a big fan of your Bomb Queen series. Tell us about your childhood comic book influences. Who are the artists that you were looked up to? Oh, I looked up to Neil Adams. I loved a lot of this stuff and a lot of early DC work. I remember I didn't get into comics until like late teens, though. But that's when I had somebody in a, uh, a comic retailer helping my mom out who would then send books to me with like little post-its on it saying, check this out, look at this inking, look at this penciling, look at this layout. And that helped influence me a lot. And I never to this day met that guy. He would only give stuff to my mom. And then I would just get comic books from like this comic book angel or whatever. That was cool. And yeah, a lot of early influences even way back to like GI combat and stuff oh, like that yeah. and haunted tank and whatnot. And some EC comics, it was just like, I didn't do the whole seven 11 spinner rack thing or, you know, back in them when they had that, but it was always something in there that I liked, but I always tend to go to some of the weird angles and that influenced me a lot. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. So it was almost like morbid and not necessarily superhero, but other genres too, war, horror, whatever else. Right, right. And that's where um, I didn't become like a superhero head kind of a guy. I did love him a lot, but it wasn't my only focus. You know, like I was a Batman guy, I was a Superman guy, or I was, a, you know, an X-Men guy or whatever, or an Iron Man guy, whatever. It, it just, it was just part of my range that hit me. And so when I started my own comics, I didn't really have that style I mean, I came to San Diego Comic-Con my first year was in 90, 1994, 93, 94. And I came right up to the door of my portfolio and I was so chicken, I didn't even come in the doors. I came all the way to San Diego and never went in. 
<laughs> because I was so scared because my style didn't match anything. It didn't have the Marvel style at the time or the DC style at the time because my early influences weren't so focused. So I didn't know how to draw Spider-Man. I didn't know how to do, uh, you know, all the, all the characters that they did. That just really, you know, opened my eyes to a new thing. So I just started self-publishing and it, it's, it was just a wild ride that way. And yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that's where I am. So tell us about self-publishing and then getting into image. Yeah, self-publishing I did because, like I said, I came here and then chickened out. So then I got my act together and I said, well, I'll just do my own book. I won't come in here and try to find a job with my style. Uh, and what year was that? Like I said, 94. But then doing my own stuff was in 95 going into 96. And I started self-publishing. I did a book called Cyberzone. I did eight issues of that. And it got to a point where I was like, you know, the indie scene at that time was really tough. And I was just doing it because I just wanted to cut my teeth and do something. And then... Um, and tell a story. Yeah, and tell a story. Exactly. And then at a certain point, I just, in a hubris of mine, just announced to the industry, well, you know, I'm going to stop doing this. You know, it was a bit of fun and all that. But, you know, I don't think anyone's really... Whatever. I'm going to try and do something else. And unbeknownst to me a lot of people were watching that i didn't even know and one of those people was image and like three days after i made that announcement jim valentino at image said dude what come over here it's like dude well you're gonna stop don't stop come just come over here so i literally took the same characters that i was self-publishing in cyberzone and that was my first image book called amanda and gun ever since then i've been with image that's been like over 20 years so you know and that led up to bomb queen <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I guess I could see Jim Valentino, his art style and yours. There is almost like it's like cartoon, but not like, but it's also it's like it's a combined approach. So he probably felt a kinship with your artwork. Yeah, Valentino, when he really, you know, he's the vice president of Image Comics. He's one of the founders of Image Comics. And in the uh, late 90s, he was actually the publisher like the Eric Stevenson of today. He was actually the curator of all this content. And Valentino's an indie guy, you know, he's an underground guy. He's, I mean, he's, he did Guardians of the Galaxy and all that stuff, but he's also a big indie guy. And he wanted to uh, really create a new content, not just the superhero content. As a matter of fact, he had a thing called the non-line back in the day, which was strictly no superheroes, black and white books. And that was the only time I was on the cover of previews. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it, he really went out of the way and, God bless that guy. I mean, he really, to this day, still tries to push the envelope in his own way. And a lot of companies now are doing the same thing. And he was one of the earlier people to do it. So, yeah, it was about a lot of goes to Valentino. He's the one that greenlit Bomb Queen off of just a couple of pictures that I drew. He's like, what's this? You know, <laughs> and it was unique for sure. It was unique to him. And I'm like, well, I don't know if you want it, Jim. It's kind of, you know, it's different. It's not like a superhero book. It's a super villain book. It's like the bad guys went all the time. And he's like. I like it. Show me more. And then after that, it was initially just a four issue series, a four issue mini series. And now, yeah, we've got like, you know, <laughs> it's a huge success. And uh, and I love it. Now, what projects are you working on now? Right now, I'm working on new Bomb Queen, Bomb Queen versus Trump. <laughs> and I'm working. And, and you had done a Bomb Queen versus Obama. And you also so you've not you've got on three presidents, basically. Yeah, uh, I was Bush when uh, the uh, the Iraq war thing. And Halliburton and all that stuff and everything. And then Obama, because, you know, Obama would not stand for bomb queen on, on U.S. soil. And now Trump is the next target. Yeah. 
it's going to be weird saying Target because Bonquin and Trump are like the same. They're buddies, really. Yeah. So the whole thing will be how. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So the whole thing is getting to a point in the Trump presidency where the superheroes of the country come to Bonquin for help because she's the only one that could capture his base. And maybe think like him in a way you're saying. And think like him because you're not going to beat Trump by saying he's a bad guy because nobody cares about that. He's, a, you know, they, he's got his base that says they love it. Just like. Bomb Queen has her base that says, we love how evil she is. <laughs> so the only way you're going to beat Trump is to steal his base from him, and that is to out-Trump Trump. Not to be a good guy, but to be a bad guy. <laughs> I like your style. Yeah, and the ultimate bad guy is a bad girl. Yeah. That's Bomb Queen. <laughs> so, yeah, so, that's, so the heroes get together because they can't kill their own sitting president. They'll be villains. <laughs> so you get a villain to do your dirty work. But, of course, it's Bomb Queen, and she's going to win where everyone's probably going to get stabbed in the back kind of a thing. So you're, you're making a deal with the devil. You're going to pay the price. <laughs> You've created a, a tremendous character and wonderful work. Jimmy, thanks so much for talking with us today. God, I love this. You guys are great. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're great as well. Thanks so much. Well, we're here at San Diego Comic-Con 2019. I'm Alex Grand of Comic Book Historian, speaking with comic book artist Benton Jew. Benton, how are you doing? Hi, how are you? Good to be here. Benton, uh, tell us about your uh, childhood influences of comic books before you got into the business. I guess when I was growing up, I, I would spend a lot of time at my grandmother's house, and I'd look at all my uncle's comics, and those comics went back to the 40s. As a kid growing up in the 70s, you know, it was great to see influences flowing back to Zorro or Joe Kubert's Army of War, things like that, or at that time, the more modern stuff, like uh, Dave Cockrum doing Legion of Superheroes or something like that, or whatever Neil Adams was doing, who was a, a big fan of. And so um, I had a broad breadth of comics from, from going way back. And also, being Asian American, I, did, I would look at the Chinese comics as well, oh, things nice. like that. And then I learned a lot about uh, European comics and, and mid-ground comics is, that would be called for all the Warrens and stuff like that. So I had a pretty broad breadth growing up. Yeah, because uh, so it sounds like you liked pretty much any country, any genre, as long as the comic art was good. Yeah, basically, art was the thing. I started drawing at a very young age. And, you know, my mom learned how to draw. She was an art student, so she gave us all her art books when she, you know, decided to give up art and become a teacher. So, you know, we grew up on Andrew Loomis and books like that to learn how to draw from. But then other stuff, but, but the stuff that we really liked to do was draw comics and stuff for movies. My main stock of trade is doing storyboards for films. So movies and comics were sort of the things that, fed my knowledge of storytelling and comics. So that's interesting. So storyboarding and comics, that's uh, visual storytelling, basically. Now, when did you figure out you had a knack for that? Pretty early on, I guess by the time I was in first grade, I was already selling, hey, draw Superman having sex with Wonder Woman. <laughs> so there's your nickel, okay. So, Like a Tijuana Bible or something. That's how, how you kids learn how to draw, I guess, starting from that. But Sweet adolescence. So... Now, what got you into the comic business? How'd you get in? Actually, I always wanted to be a comic book artist, but also, you know, comics, uh, the movies were on the side because I, I, I just wanted to draw comics. But then by the time art school came around, I, I was able to get a job working at uh, Industrial Light Magic doing storyboards, probably because my portfolio had some comic book style stuff in it. And one of the people who recommended me is a big fan of old style comics in my artwork tends to be kind of in an old old style like 
I showed it to the storyboard artist for Indiana Jones, and he was a big fan of Sam Drake and oh, Leonard Star. He said, your stuff kind of looks like that. And so he remembered me. And then years later, he said, well, I have this job that ILM wanted him to do, but he couldn't do it. So he, he said, yeah, you guys got some guy who draws an old style comics. And that's how I got into working at ILM. Now, tell us some of the projects you've done for various uh, comic companies like uh, Marvel and some of the independents. I did some stuff for Comics Works. I did some stuff for Monsterverse, you know, kind of Warren type stories. And I did uh, the very first full story with the new She Hulk unit in Hulk Family Number One. And then I also did a short comic uh, or short backup story uh, called. Wolverine, Agent of Atlas. It was back up in the Agents of Atlas that came out in 2008, I think. So that, just a few scattered appearances and stuff all around. So so what projects are you working on now? I'm working on, you know, mostly storyboarding movies. That's your bread and butter, basically. Bread and butter, yeah. I work, the next thing that I think that's big that will be coming out will be uh, the new Mulan movie. I worked on the Mulan movie and things like that so i end up working on a lot of superhero movies yeah i've worked on wonder woman and logan and venom and stuff like that so we'll see there's some other stuff that might be coming up so i'm keeping my fingers crossed well that sounds great well benton thank you so much for uh, the interview today and we wish you a great con you too thanks a lot all right well i'm alex with the comic book historian podcast today we have Jim Chung, which uh, we're really grateful to be interviewing. Jim, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for inviting me. Jim, tell the audience about your uh, childhood comic book influences. You've done a lot of work for both Marvel and DC. What kind of comics did you read as a kid? I read pretty much everything I could get my hands on, I think. Um, I started out reading Marvel books, but then I um, discovered all the DC stuff. But at the time, I pretty much grabbed everything I could off the shelves. Did you read also things other than Marvel and DC, like Warren magazines and things like that? Or was it mostly like superhero stuff? It was mostly superhero stuff because that was what I could get my hands on. Because yeah. I grew up in the UK, so all oh, the Warren stuff yeah. wasn't really available to me I at see. the time. Yeah. yeah. So then um, with the, the superhero stuff, were you more of a Marvel guy or DC guy? Or maybe just you just liked it all? Because I'm currently working with DC, I would say I'm pretty neutral. But <laughs> um, Spider-Man is my favorite. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So now, who are artists um, that you uh, looked at and were inspired by when you were reading those comics? I loved John Byrne growing up. I loved John Romita Jr. and all those guys from that period, I think. Um, I used to be able to just pick up a Marvel book or a DC book, and because I spent so much time looking at them, I would be able to tell who drew what instantly. Yeah. yeah. Like in the 80s, you were pretty much doing all this, reading those comics in the 80s then? Absolutely. Yeah, that's how old I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then, um, how'd you get into the comic book business? I just kind of almost fell into it. I mean, I, I knew how to get into the business. So I just produced samples like they told us to. And luckily enough, um, it got put in front of the right people. And from there, it just kind of like just went from there. Yeah. Around what year was that when you uh, entered the comic book business? Oh, boy. It was like the mid 90s. Yeah. Good. Tell the audience uh, what stories uh, you did for Marvel and then also what projects you're working on for DC now. For Marvel, I've done pretty much everything from I started off doing like the teen Tony Stark story to um, X-Force to Young Avengers to some of the crossovers like Infinity. Pretty much done a lot of that stuff. And right now I'm in between projects at DC. So I'm just doing a lot of covers for them right now. Yeah. Well, I love what you did with Justice League. I mean, that is really beautiful work. I think a lot of people, when they see those pages, they're just blown away. 
Thanks very much. Yeah, I put a lot of effort and time into it, and I really wanted to make my make an impact on my first introduction to those characters. So, yeah, but it's been fun. Yeah. And I also noticed you have no problem doing team books. You can pretty much just draw everybody on that page. Is that daunting at first, and then you're just used to it, or was that pretty easy from day one? Uh, I think I just got used to it. Just from over the years, they just keep adding more characters. Now that, and really, when you're doing a solo character, it's not really a solo character, but because there's always so many background characters. So I just got used to juggling characters on the page. So yeah, it's kind of second nature now. Well, we're really grateful for the discussion today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Hope you enjoyed the show, folks. We'll be back next time with my co-host, Jim, to get deep into the annals of comic history. Cheers. Cheers.